Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites' weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. I'm your host. My name is Brian Vitali. Joining me, we've got Adam Vitali. Hello. James Galizio. Hey, folks. And Chow Min Wu. How's it going? Uh, this is our second regular podcast for 2023, and we had a lot of people tune in for uh, the one the episode that we held last week. Um, I think covering Fire Emblem Engage is our biggest January release for the site. A lot of people were interested in tuning into Adam's preview on that. Uh, this week, I think, is the one week in the first quarter of the year that is a little bit slower. The major release of this week, as of the time of recording, is that... Two weeks, uh, two days ago, we had the release of One Piece Odyssey, which we don't have anyone on the podcast playing right now, though we do have a few people that are planning to cover it for the site. So we'll hopefully see that review a bit. But just be honest, we got our our coverage uh, copy very, very late. So I'm not 100% sure when that'll come through. So we're going to make sure we take our time with it. But then starting next week, we have, of course, the, the full release of Fire Emblem Engage. Uh, the week after that, we've got Forspoken. And then a couple of weeks after that, we were we're into February, so you got uh you got Wild Hearts, and you've got um, Octopath Traveler two, and then Wo Long in there. So basically, after this week, it's going to be something new every week. And I know at least a few people on the podcast have been working on things that are they're under embargo on right now that will be able to be talked about uh, in the upcoming weeks. So today, we're just kind of working on those and playing a few games that we didn't quite get to last year. And I think uh, maybe a couple more words on Fire Emblem Engage before we, you know, unveil the curtain on that next week. But for now, uh, it actually turns out the major release for this week is actually a Final Fantasy XIV patch, of all things, other than One Piece Odyssey. So both James and Chow are our Final Fantasy XIV veterans and regulars, and the patch 6.3 just came out within the last seven days, and I don't know anything about it. So I'm going to hand this off over to James to talk about what is patch 6.3 and like what is exciting about because this is normally be when they start going into new story for a new expansion. But I don't quite know where Final Fantasy 14 is in that moment because they're uh, in kind of a completely new story arc as far as I know. So what has your experience been with the uh, the newest Final Fantasy 14 update? Okay, so 6.3 is a good patch so far, but it's a bit interest it's a bit uh weird to talk about because like 6.1, 6.2 immediately brought like huge changes to the game, huge additions. Like 6.1, I believe, was the patch that brought Island Sanctuary, or was that 6.2? Ciao. I think you that know, was 6.2. I think never mind, that was 6.2. 6.1 brought the PvP uh, rework in Crystal Conflict, which People actually like PvP in this game now. Like the one major issue people still have with it is the latency between your actions and like them actually going out. They really need to work on that. <laughs> um, but anyway, six point three added in a new alliance raid, new MSQ, a new trial, and an extreme to go with it. Uh, a lot of what's being added with this patch cycle won't be around until 6.35 or 6.31 if you're if you're interested in the uh, newest ultimate so right now not too much new content added to the game there's like bits and pieces here and there it's like a good like it's enough to justify like resubbing if you haven't subbed since the last patch to try it out but i think most of what people are excited for from 6.3 
won't be around for another like a uh, month and a half when uh, 6.35 drops because that's when you're going to get the uh, the new deep dungeon. That's when you're going to get the new uh, tribal quests and so on and so forth. But how have you been feeling about Chow? I feel okay about it. Uh, I think the only problem was the paladin changes. It's it's a bit drastic. I feel having something this drastic change around the middle of the cycle of people still, you know, and right before an ultimate. Yeah, it's kind of awkward. It's like, oh yeah, it's like we're completely going to change how your character works. And some people are very disappointed. Some people like it. It's very mixed feelings about that part. Um, I miss my dots, Chow. Uh, do you I play miss my dots. Do you play Yeah, <laughs> well, I did. Well, I, I love what my friends called them. They, they called them, like, Gunbreaker 2.0. <laughs> it yeah. just doesn't feel right, I guess, for them. Yeah, but Gunbreaker has more dots than Paladin now. It's uh, God, I just... I, I really liked the flow that old Paladin had. And it's like, I understand why they changed it, because now all the fights have to be based around this... Uh, asinine uh, two, two minute, minute window yeah it, it actually like lets you clear raids so easily when yeah. you have everything timed up for the two minute burst window and then you just pop all your well, cooldowns and shit buffs it's not so much that but every fight in endwalker so far has been deliberately balanced around when those burst windows come up to the point where in like dsr like uh one of well probably the hardest mechanic in the fight uh ross flame is right during your two minute burst so it's like the devs have been explicitly designing fights around this new meta, so it's kind of going to be much more difficult for them to untangle it because a lot of what makes these fights, the like, a lot of what like um, constitutes their identity is just baked into that assumption that players are going to be engaging with first windows every two minutes. So I don't, I don't think they're going to abandon the two the uh, two minute window thing going forward as much as I would like them to. But uh, it does mean that some changes like to Paladin, even as even as much as I preferred the playstyle of old Paladin, changes like this are unfortunately necessary if they want every class to be viable moving forward, which sucks. But yeah, oh, this is what it is. Uh, at least we're not like machinists, which they complain so long until they finally accept what we have right now. Yeah, I'm, well, no, machinists finally got fixed for people with uh, high ping, and they also got, like, an extra mitigation. So I think, like, Machinist still needs a little bit of work, but I think this is the first patch I've heard, like, Machinist players actually be, like, pointing the gun at someone else instead of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Machinist players. Yeah. Have Machinist um, kind of been an un unserved child for a long while then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's It's been one of those issues where the dev team, because uh, the netcode works perfectly fine in Japan, there's some issues that arise from higher ping for certain job classes or even just like content in general that like Machinist, if you lived right next to a data center, you were fine. It was still like one of the lower. It was still like the lowest DPS for a ranged uh, DPS class, which shouldn't be the case when it didn't have any like party utility out like versus like bard and dancer but at least it was playable so the change they made now was uh changing a core action to stacks instead of it being a window which uh which means that uh if you're you don't have to worry about like missing a weave you're still getting the same amount of damage out because the cooldown for that ability is going to be the same even if you haven't exhausted all of your stacks so it works out. 
But yeah. like the biggest issue was just their damage numbers back then too. They were and they were like ten percent weaker than everybody else. So when people doing these raids, you know, they want everyone to have peak numbers so they could clear the raid because you're just fighting like for life and death in the raids for the first time, right? You would just like barely clear it. So if you're not putting up those numbers, like well, you're gonna have a hard time clearing it. So uh, people have to make the hard decision to abandon their class and play something else or play peak perfect performance to clear the fight. And that's also terrible. So, so the, uh, the story since Endwalker, because it was a fresh story right at 6.1, does that mean like has the pacing of the, the six patch series been different from that front as we lead into? Because... Remind me, if Endwalker was December 2021, then we should be getting another expansion within 12 months? Um, yeah. Probably well, after this yeah. settled. It's, it seems like they're probably going to be changing when these expansions release, specifically because they've made it so that each patch is on a four-month cycle now, plus uh, a, like a week here and there for like breaks like during holidays and whatnot. Which means that uh, we're, we're probably not going to get uh, the next expansion until 2024. Uh, we'll, we'll have more information later this year because like FanFest in Las Vegas, which I'm hopefully going to, uh, will uh, definitely have the announcement for the next expansion, even if it's not coming out this year, because that'll be around the time when 6.4 launches if not a little bit after that. And uh, that's generally when the next expansion is announced. But this is the first fan fest in a few years. Sorry. I was uh, the first in person in a few years. So mm -hmm. you were saying, Joe, uh, I was just going to say the story is kind of like just set up in the new arc, but I feel like this arc is not uh, going to hint anything about what the next expansion is going to be until at least 6.5 i believe because i feel like what's going on currently and what happened next are going to be completely two different things that's at least how i feel what was the new alliance raid uh it was it in an existing series or was it a, its own standalone thing Existing series. Uh, so every Which expansion series? has an Alliance Raid series. Uh, Endwalkers is uh, Myths of the Realm, which is based around uh, these 12 uh, gods called, well, 12, that uh, are kind of like the patron, the pantheon of Eorzea. And uh, after Endwalker, everyone's like everyone in the game's wondering, so who the hell even are the 12? And uh, the Alliance Raid series has been uh, slowly dealing with that. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. The first one was uh, very well received, uh, especially the final encounter. And I feel like this uh, this Alliance Raid has also been very well received, which means that this Alliance Raid series is already better than the near Alliance Raid series. That is the worst Alliance Raid, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, the fight near is. Cool. Yeah, it's very over the top. But the fights story, take forever. Yeah. Uh, the second boss. Okay, the second final boss, or where is it? Second final boss. The the final boss of the second tier is the worst one. It takes forever to kill, and there's all these stupid long ass cutscenes. It's it's awful. But I think the worst part is just the story. 
It's like you yeah. meet the near characters and they say, hey, thanks, bye. And that's basically the end of the story. And then there's these twins that you care about, but their story is just suddenly over and then there's nothing about it. It's it's terrible. Yeah, um, the This Alliance Raid series, I don't think the story is nearly as much of a concern for most people. Uh, it's generally like the pacing is pretty decent. I, I like what they're what they're uh, especially with uh, the story uh, moments after the actual uh, raid this time around. I think they're doing a good job of what they have, what they're going for. Um, but the fights themselves and the encounters and like the visuals and whatnot ha- are definitely like way more interesting than the near raids were. I'll say that much. I still think the Stormblood Alliance raids, the Biblis ones, are the best just for in regards to the scope and also the encounters and the uh, pacing and the story. It's it's so good. It's so good. Um, I don't think Endwalkers is going to beat it out, but at least it seems like it's gunning for second place, which is A-OK with me. Um, I, like for the new raid tier, I think the weirdest thing is the difficulty. Uh... Somehow the last boss is the easiest one out of all the fights for some reason. But I don't know. I, I think they should have switched the order with the third and the last one. That that's I mean it was kinda like the first fight in the tier was kind of a similar thing, except for like that one mechanic. I don't think the final fight of the well, the final um, encounter of the first uh alliance raid this expansion was that difficult. Yeah, well, the first one's definitely not that difficult. I, I think the worst one was the second one, with the two that you had to fight at once. That, oh, that I, was... I was talking about, like, you said, oh, I think the final fight of this uh, yeah. this raid was was the, was the super easy, and I'm saying I think it was oh, the no, same no, no, thing no, for no, the no. last Alliance raid. Well, not, like, super easy, but, like, well, like, eh. It's, like, compared to the first two fights, it's just, ugh. <laughs> I, I the... do... The penultimate boss should have been the final boss. Yes. I think we can both agree on that. Yeah, that's what I would think. Um, like, I don't think the music, the boss music, fits for the third boss. It fits for the first two, but the third one doesn't yeah. fit better. Now, now, that being said, regardless of whatever reason they had for giving a, um, for the final boss being the final boss of this raid, that music, absolute banger. I think they wanted to give it to, to that last boss because of the magical girl sounding theme to it. <laughs> For Makes anyone that's yeah. that never heard it. it, it sounds like something out of, uh, was it, Revolution Girl Utana. So <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Yeah. But yeah, uh, generally, the uh, so the Alliance raid was good. The story was good, though obviously you can't really talk about that without spoiling shit. Um, what did you think of the trial, and have you done the extreme? I only done a normal version. Uh, I want to do the extreme version, but uh, <laughs> we need to clear our our raids, and we haven't have any luck. As soon as the patch hit, we had nothing but connection issues uh, from people having split second delay to dying theme to the most simplest mechanics. Uh, so yeah, not a, not a good experience when when the patch hit. <laughs> yeah, we've been having some very uh, server issues i'm not sure if you're having that oh yeah no i've definitely been having that like uh that's the reason why they had that emergency maintenance uh the other day i haven't actually logged in since then because of uh other reasons but uh hopefully it's fixed it hopefully it's fixed it 
yeah, once we get our rating sorted, if we could find some spare time, we'll do the extreme. Uh, the null version was pretty cool. I mean, had a lot of fun fights. Obviously, I prefer the previous trial because it's more chaotic, but I'm not sure how this one is. You already cleared it, right, James? Uh, not yet. Uh, I did see Enrage in a, well, basically what I did is a few nights ago, I did, I joined like a, uh, blind, uh, uh, blind run, uh, party finder. And that group actually managed to get through a uh, limit cut, which is basically the last mechanic. So we didn't clear, uh, we did two lockouts. We probably would have done a third, but it was like 2am and everyone was like, okay, I need to, to get off now. And made sense. Um, See, so, yeah, I, I I do want to get get my clear, and I'm and I and I know I'm ready for it. It's just like always the curse of is Party Finder ready for it? Party Finder is ready for anything, okay? Uh, it's all all depends on how much you're willing to put up with. That's the Party Finder experience, and never do it on Mondays. Monday is basically the kill yourself difficulty. Yeah, because you have the desperate uh, folks like hopping on, being like, "Please, just the clear, just the clear." Why is Monday that day? Uh, basically, the best players the play on Tuesday. Yeah, they play on uh. Tuesday. Uh, the best, best players, if you want to not want to, uh, to uh, I won't finish that sentence, uh, um, for, on Party Finder, is uh, if you're doing the actual raid tier, if you want to do requeers and be damn sure you're going to have a good time, the absolute... I don't even know the the best way to put this. I'll I'll just say it. Um, no lifers. <laughs> if you hop on on Monday night and then just wait right before reset and join a party finder for reclears, you're gonna have the best damn reclear experience of your life because the people that do that are damn sure no damn sure know what they're doing because they don't want to have to stay up any longer than they have to. <laughs> so those will reclear within a, an hour of everything coming up which yeah, is like for the week, basically. 2 a.m yeah <laughs> i actually stay up that time to clear do clears with party finders before and it's a night and day experience i'll yeah, tell because, you it'll be like one shot clears yeah no the people that do that then are like they're they're not playing around they will kick you if you don't if you don't like do a one shot clear and you're the reason they uh, fail because it's like they they don't have time for that shit they're like bullet training just like making sure that they get those reclears done within the hour yeah it'll be like one shot clear done uh but you know okay so p5s you know i i know this fight inside out but I can't even clear that fight on Monday night. But if I do it in Tuesdays, done. It will be done in 15 minutes and I'm out of here. But on a Monday night, I would see people even struggle on on healing on the first mechanic. And they'll be like, why? Why Why? Why aren't you doing fate on this boss? It's like, it's going to fucking hurt like shit if you don't do fate. And a lot of people don't seem to know how to do that. I also think the game doesn't teach you how to do damage reduction the game never provides a tutorial for that it just provides a tutorial on the dumbest things like targeting and you know midi but they never talk about damage mitigation which is very important for um you know harder raids like extreme and savages <laughs> uh, i hope they do something to address it in the future yeah well, thank you to you two for going over the most recent final fantasy 14 patch uh, i know i've seen a lot of people sharing that uh 
their time going back into the game. And I've seen a, it's kind of fun watching it from the sidelines where I'll see James tweet something like, what did they do to you? And I'll see like a, a thumbnail for an ability that's a paladin skill. And I'm like, what am I supposed to be looking at? I don't know. So it's always kind of fun just to vicariously live through uh, other people who are so in the know that they can kind of know these little incremental changes on the, on the skill potencies and things like that. And know which of these changes were long overdue or which of these changes were kind of out of nowhere and you're not exactly sure how they'll impact the like the meta game and things like that. So last week we talked a bit about primarily two games, Fire Emblem Engage and Chained Echoes. Uh, I finished Chained Echoes in the last week and I basically, I had no interest in um, One Piece, which was the major release of the week for our site. So I wanted to make sure I took the the, the gap the one gap that we have in January to play something from last year uh, that fell through the cracks for me that it seemed like didn't really register with a lot of people. So I went ahead and I started playing Soul Hackers 2. Uh, I kind of picked it for a couple of reasons. One, I heard it was not too long. Two, it was kind of like this flash in a pan game where it wasn't announced until a few months into last year. And then it kind of released in the what, late summer, early fall. And then it kind of like was out of people's collective consciousness. It didn't seem like it really had a lot of staying power and didn't really show up. Like it was kicked off our end of the year tally pretty quickly. And I was just like, you know what? I'm, I'm just interested. I'm just curious about this game. And I'm not nearly as big of a Atlas Shin Megami Tensei fan as Adam or Josh, but I've been kind of poking at it and working on it. I played obviously Shin Megami Tensei 5 when it came out a couple years ago. Um, and then I have played Persona 4 and a few of the Devil Summoner games. So, and I know Shim- I know Slackers 2 doesn't have the Shimagami Tensei prefix or whatever. But, anyways, I started playing this game, and my impressions are that I kind of understand why it didn't have a lot of staying power. First of all, my very first initial impression out of the gate was that it feels a lot cheaper than I expected in terms of the quality of the animations, the robotic movement of the characters they do this sort of thing where they'll like they'll move their body into the pose that it needs to be in for the scene then their facial expression will change then they'll move their head and i was um like normally that stuff doesn't bother me but i guess i just wasn't expecting it because i've never i haven't played a game with that level of kind of robotic animation in a while and i was i was streaming in a discord chat and adam was saying uh yeah it kind of reminds me of a vita game I'm like, oh, I can I can kind of see that. Uh, so I had to acclimate to that a little bit just in terms of the the quality of the presentation. I will say that the the starting bit of the story is really, really not slapdash, but almost like efficient. Like we want to give you your four party members, obviously Ringo, Arrow, Melody and Saizo all within like the first hour. So you kind of just go beat by beat with no no time to really breathe as you're introduced to each character and super quickly introduced to each premise, uh, why they're there and you, you w- how they're going to be partnered with Ringo in the overarching narrative of the game. So it's kind of like a blink and all of a sudden you've got your full party, which I actually do kind of appreciate from a mechanical standpoint. I don't like it where it's like, oh, you get this party member 15 hours in and by that time you don't have any use for them. So I actually do kind of enjoy that you have every everything that you need on a mechanical standpoint right from the outset. It's just that the story I feels like is super doesn't quite it doesn't quite stew in itself long enough. It's just super quick, super efficient, almost very surface level and superficial. But when you get past that point and then you get into the first dungeons and then the game kind of very clearly shows uh, what it is. 
And it's a game that is very, very um, focused on combat, which I've not played the original Soul Hackers, but that one was a dungeon crawler. So I'm not surprised, like a dungeon crawler through and through, like a true blobber. Um, so I'm not surprised that, that it has that focus. And to be honest, Shin Megami Tensei 5 was very similar, where I remember some people who were playing that game actually kind of criticized it for saying, like, all you do is run and fight and run and fight. Um, in principle, I don't uh, have an issue with that. But in this game, just the way that the Sabbath system works instead of the Adam, you'll have to correct me here. Is Shimagami Tensei press turn or once more? Press turn. Ah, okay. Uh, so this one has a system where I know we like if you listen back to our podcast from when this game was new last year, we've talked about what this system, how it works, uh, just from the early marketing of it. But I just didn't realize on a repetitive basis, because in, in a game that has turn-based combat and uh, a designated battle screen, there's going to be a, some level of repetitiveness. But I just didn't compartmentalize how repetitive the Sabbath system would be. So every single time you hit a weakness of an enemy, you get this counter, and the, the strength of the counter throughout your round will determine the strength of the Sabbath at the end of the round. Which makes sense on paper, okay, and just like any other game in, by, in this overarching meta series, even though I know it's not SMT, technically, uh, has a lot of the same commonalities, like hitting strengths and weaknesses and making sure that your resistances are in the proper place is very key and fundamental. However, like I wasn't expecting that after every single round, all of your characters act once, that there's this, it's not a super intricate fancy animation, but there's this pretty detailed little 10 second animation of Ringo executing the Sabbath. And it just seems like really bizarre that it does that after every single round. So you watch it once and then it almost becomes natural that once you start seeing that you're going to press B or whatever on your controller to cancel through it. Cause you don't need to see that every single time. It just seems very, I don't know, very strange. Like I almost wish that the Sabbath was something that built up over multiple terms, turns rounds and felt a little bit more consequential instead it kind of feels just like almost like a fifth attack of the round you get your your four party members to do their thing and then you get your fifth attack um but maybe that was the intent maybe just my preconception was wrong uh the and basically i'm just kind of thinking back to when adam covered this game for us on the podcast last year just now that i've experienced it for myself firsthand i'm about halfway through i'm about 20 hours in or not maybe, maybe more like 13 hours in um the the fact that it opens up with the soul matrix, which is kind of like almost like the secondary dungeon that has expanding floors and tiers that you slowly work your way through. It opens up with this dungeon, which is just kind of strange because it has nothing else that really sells it other than this is the most basic stripped down, no flavor dungeon in the game. It's just there to be a series of battles and quests. Then when you go into the story, the very first dungeon is a like a subway, like an underground train station, which is fine. But it's a little bit like, you know, it's almost like a Western RPG starting in the sewers. It just feels like a pretty a little bit rote. Like, OK, the first dungeon's in a subway. That's that's fine. But then the second dungeon's like also in a subway where at that point yeah. I'm like 10 or 12 hours in and I'm just kind of like bored of the scenery a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of. I, I agree with everything you're saying because, like, I felt the same way. It's very weird that the game kind of opens up with this sort of sterile, boring side dungeon. And someone got mad at me that I called it a side dungeon, but it is technically optional. 
and then then you throw are thrown into a subway, which is basically just straight lines, and then you're thrown into a second subway, and it's just kind of like, and it takes a while to go through all that, and you're like ten hours in, and you're like, all I've seen are subways and and this kind of like digital world sterilized place, and it's just you know, it's just kind of, it's a very, it's not a very good opening foot, so. Just the just the flavor of it is a little bit bland in terms of like the environments, the art, um, not what you're doing and the narrative are fine. I actually think decent to good. It's just not this, this just not interesting. It's, it's it's having a hard time. Like it almost feels like a chore, like, oh, better, better play some more soul hackers today. Uh, oh, yeah, I had to finish the second dungeon. I will say that the there is a lot of. um I get I get a lot of that pro- progression serotonin or whatever when you're just getting stronger, learning abilities, uh, fusing demons, just the the whole usual SMT just progression pacing is all there. It always it kind of feels good to have like a series uh, a set of demons on your characters and you see like oh yeah this demon's giving me a really cool passive or this demon's finally giving me uh, a multi target um, meteor ram or, or whatever. Um, and then, oh, okay. Now all my, all my demons have given me their, their max affinity bonus time to go to the, the, the velvet room or whatever it is in this game and get them all fused and, uh, basically reconfigure my team for the next round and kind of tear up and tear up and tear up. Oh, I don't have this demon yet. And that sort of thing is still kind of really addicting. And there was a part where I'm trying not to play this game super comprehensively. Like I'm not. Depending on how I'm enjoying a JRPG, sometimes I will absolutely like exhaust. Like I'm going to do the Soul Matrix. I'm going to go as far as I'm physically allowed to for each character because each of your three other party members have a wing of the Soul Matrix that you're kind of limited to how far you can go by story progression. And I could see that if I was playing this game brand new and I had a lot of extra time to sink into it, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to exhaust this game. I'm going to get as far as I can in Arrow Soul Matrix. Okay, now I'm going to get as far as I can in Ability Soul Matrix. But because I'm kind of trying to play this ahead of Fire Emblem Engage and Forspoken for January, I'm trying to be a little bit more like, okay, I've seen a little bit of each Soul Matrix. Let me do the story. And in a way, that's actually made the boss fights like I'm not overpowering over them. And I don't know if it's easy to or hard to do that. Uh, but I'm going into the boss fights. I, I just did the uh, what size those girlfriend's name? Is it Ash? Is it Amy? Ash. Ash. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I went into her boss fight and I actually struggled with it. And like in terms of struggling with it, I mean, like I went in, lost, changed a few things, lost again. And then I'm like, all right, I need to actually like prepare myself for this. Okay. A lot of her summons do dark damage or ruin damage. They call it in this game. Uh, so I need to get me at least a few characters resistant to that. Also her primary weaknesses force or wind. So I need to make sure I have at least two characters that have this and it actually kind of felt good to have to micromanage to a small extent and then go back and have a much easier time. I know that sounds like really, really basic, but a lot of times in these games, if you play them as exhaustively you as you can, force it. You can just be like, I am stronger than you. It doesn't matter what I do. I will win. So now I, because I was a little bit underleveled, I'm like, okay, I actually have to think about this a bit. Okay, I might actually need to summon this demon from my compendium because it has a resist ruin. And I would, that would really help me out here. So that actually felt like, like it actually, like once I uh, was able to win that boss fight, uh, 
well, that boss fight particularly, I think, it ends before you actually finish it because of story reasons. But uh, it actually felt like rewarding and not just going through the motions. So I actually kind of like I think in a way I'm getting myself a little bit more gameplay uh, enjoyment out of not being an absolute locust on the um, on the side of side side event or quest front. Uh, those little those little tiny tasks that you get in the Soul Matrix, I haven't completed a single one. I guess I'm just not incentivized to do that, I guess, because it's like, oh, this one will get me this random item. Is that item useful? Maybe. I don't know. I don't want, I want to see the story. So I'm tr- I'm not trying to do it like absolutely as bare bones as possible, but I'm just trying to be, I don't know, efficient about it. But one thing enjoying the characters, of, um, I think one thing that's kind of annoying ahead. about the soul matrix, or I should say it's kind of just kind of maybe like a missed opportunity is that each character has their own soul matrix, but they all look and function and work the same way. It's like you could yeah. change it up a little bit to you know reflect the character a bit, but they don't. So it, it just kind of feels think, like whenever a new floor opens, you just got to do it three times. You think they could at least like color code? Like this one has a, a reddish hue, this one has a bluish hue, or yeah, something. They don't like, even do that. Even the, they all look the same. That, that, would that mean anything? No, but at least it would give you some flavor. Like aha, this is Arrow Soul Matrix rather than yep, this place looks like everyone else's. And I don't know. Like I feel it feels kind of silly to harp so much on a game's flavor. But this game is just lacking. I guess some people would call it charm or whatever. It's one of those like nebulous things that everyone defines a different way. Uh, the game just kind of feels sterile. And the Soul Matrix is kind of like the um, the microcosm of all that. Uh, what I was going to say is that I, I really do, even though I mentioned at the start that the 3D art animation was a bit stiff, I do really enjoy the 2D art. I'm not sure who the artist of this game was, but uh, I just think it really pops and it really kind of fits the the style and setting of the game. Um and then we also talked about how, obviously, we talked about this in a few different contexts. Uh, the audio track, the OST for this game, was done mostly by what Manaka, so someone who hasn't worked on this property before. And it, you had already mentioned in a few instances the Comp Smith music. I really like the um, the item shop music. Uh, there's kind of like this eerie synthy song that plays whenever a bittersweet, uh, like sad moments playing, which really kind of fits the vibe. Of, of the game really well and i just the soundtrack is probably i obviously it's 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 not the highlight of the game i think that's kind of overselling it but it's really really fits the game well and i don't really have any complaints the soundtrack is just good and fitting and i've been enjoying it a lot and i'll even sometimes like sit in the uh the item shop and just let the game play there while i uh while I go make myself a coffee or, or something like that and just let it just let it idle there because I'm enjoying the music a lot. Uh, but yeah, Slackers 2, I kind of wanted to just play through it because it was kind of a gap from last year. Uh, it was kind of a, 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 I say this without any judgment, a B-tier title that kind of didn't, it was crowded out by a lot of bigger, more impactful games. So I kind of at least wanted to give it a look in and kind of just play it just from my knowledge base and be like, yeah, okay, Atlas did this kind of semi-experimental thing from a long dormant franchise last year, and I kind of want to see uh, what that was all about. So I do still have, <laughs> I mentioned this last October, I think, I still have Persona 5 installed both on my computer and on my Steam Deck that I will get to eventually. Uh, I don't know when that'll be, especially <laughs> since I'll need to find 100 hours to do that. But um We'll see. Hopefully that'll be April. I look at the calendar and April is the first time where everything starts to loosen up, but who knows how long that'll last. Uh, but yeah, Selectors 2, I'm hoping to finish it this week. And then, of course, next week, go into Fire Emblem Engage. Uh, I don't think I quite have that pre-ordered, but I'll probably push that through uh, by the end of the weekend and get ready to dump, jump into that. I think it releases on Friday and we'll be recording the day after. Uh, so that'll be pretty fun. So Fire Emblem Engage, I don't think we... Uh, 
earmarked a ton of time for this podcast to talk about it here because we talked about it last week in the preview context. And obviously, we're going to be talking about it next week in the full release context. But Adam, I think you just said you wanted to have a couple minutes to to kind of clarify a few things. Uh, if that wasn't the case, we can we can skip this. But I don't know if you wanted to speak to it a little bit based Very on your quick. comments from last week. Yeah. Okay. So people tendency, not everyone. I'm not trying to you know label everyone, but there's a tendency for sometimes people when they read a review or they listen to comments, they kind of they give you like the least charitable interpretation of what you say which is frustrating but it's part of the you know it's part of the deal uh so i just i'm gonna just offer like a few sort of i guess clarifications on what i've said last week for people who listened last week just so right now we're still we're still under preview embargo which is admittedly a little bit weird because some of the things that we are supposed to not be able to talk about the Fire Emblem, like Japanese Twitter account, has already like shown in a lot of detail. So it's kind of like I'm not allowed to talk about this thing that is already public knowledge, whatever. Um, but anyways, the review is coming next week, and then on next week's podcast, I'll be able to talk, you know, more about full thoughts and things like that. And I'll, you know, be I'll have you know prepared, you know, a review and everything on it, and be able to talk to it more. Obviously, I won't spoil anything uh, or whatnot. Um, but in terms of like the preview context of things I said last week, like, for example, some people were confused when I said the game doesn't have a lot of romance. It doesn't. Um, the way I view it, when you look at games like Awakening and Fates, those games really ratcheted it up from previous entries. In fact, when I view those games, they're largely a matchmaker simulator. You're taking your characters, you're shipping them together to form you know, these supports and in those games, obviously there's a children, like a generational mechanic um, that kind of comes out of that also. Um, and then, you know, the games that came after that, so we're talking like Echoes and Three Houses, they ratcheted down romance already quite a bit. Um, let's just take Three Houses, for instance. In Three Houses, um, some of the supports between characters, you know, have like a romantic flair to them. Obviously there's no like tied child mechanic or anything this time but there is some romance between characters you have the tea time you do get to pick someone to kind of be your partner or whatnot and i would say engage is roughly on that level i would argue that it's actually even a little bit pulled back even more from that that's basically what i was saying romance is not like a strong like element to this game there is some it's just not a lot so all i was trying to say is that if you really kind of latched on to awakening or fates because of that angle, and that was like the reason to play, just kind of go in with the understanding that that's not really here. So that's is, the, is the romance is the romance only protagonist and other characters, or or because when I think hard, of romance, I can't really say ah, okay because um, sometimes it's so, like well, what about like you know in the classic games, a lot of times yeah, like have two characters, characters were, or whatever. But and they're they're predetermined. It's like okay, if these two characters pair up, these two will have a romantic romantic paired ending, but these two won't because it's all like pre written. Which I actually kind of right. like. I don't like where it's just you can pair anyone with anyone because that I, I kind of like feeling like okay, these two characters have an affinity with each other or they pair well, and therefore they have a paired ending, which is still optional because you don't have to run that support. But I guess I'm still thinking of the mindset. Like for example, in, in uh, the Tellius games, in the Tellius games, if you support. Boyd and Mist together, a romance forms, but you don't have to. And I don't think right. Mist like 
I don't think Mist ever develops romantic feelings for any of, the, any of her other supports, right? It's just Boyd and Mist mm-hmm. do, you know? I think that's kind of what you're saying. There's just like, there were some supports that had a romantic element to them. Right. And I'm just saying in Engage, there's not really a lot of that, not at all. So it's just, I'm not saying it's completely absent. It's just, you know, it kind of feels like a weird thing to focus on, but considering how prominent it was in the 3DS games, I think it's worth commenting on, especially because a lot of people did start with those. Um, in terms of like things, one thing that I've kind of learned that a lot of people are curious about is map design. And I really liked Fire Emblem Fates Conquest in terms of its map design. And not only it's like map, like the literal layout of the maps, but also just like things like objectives and positioning. Um, I don't think Engage is quite that strong. Um, I think I said on the podcast last week that it, I put it on roughly the same level as Three Houses. Uh, it might be a notch better, but what I'm, I, I'm actually at this point this weekend, I have a long weekend here. I'm going to look at, I'm going to kind of revisit Three Houses maps and look at Engage maps and see if I can categorize them and get some, you know, maybe hard like numbers in terms of how many maps are open, how many maps have choke points or whatnot to try to get a more concrete answer other than just kind of like my general feelings. I think it's fine. Like, I don't think it's necessarily a strong suit of the game, but really wait for the review. Just I'll have a little bit more of a concrete feeling on it there, or I should say just concrete data or whatever. But, um, you know, I just don't think the map design in Engage is necessarily like something that people are going to come away from saying, yes, this is really great. So I don't think it's a good. Yeah, I mean, I'm, Three Houses had a lot of open fields. It was kind of like more like these battlefields. Um, but there was a handful of levels that were like inside buildings or, you know, with choke points and things like that. Uh, I, th- I think I said in the review for Three Houses that the paralogs had a little bit better uh, objectives and things like that. Um, so I'll come, I'll revisit that before the review, which goes up next week, of course. Um, so, and obviously people are entitled to their opinions, but I don't, I still, I don't think it reaches like the level of Conquest or even um, some other earlier games. So. Um, what are you, so I think one of the, one of the things, and I, I don't want to repeat just everything you said last week too much, but you, well, I think one of the things you said was a highlight of the game was your experience with just how the emblem ring mechanic works yeah. in terms of tearing that up and the amount of flexibility it gives you. Yeah. So that's, that's clearly the strength of the game to me is, you know, each emblem has their own set of skills, weapons, and equipment, or I should say skills, abilities, and weapons. And, you know, you can put them on anyone. And so while emblems technically work the same way, regardless on who you put them on, obviously there might be certain characters that work better with certain emblems just based on their natural, you know, slate of weapons or movement or stats or what have you. So I just think that's really cool. And when you're playing this game, at least the way I played it, the way I, I've beaten the game now. Last week, I think I said I was just before the final battle. Now I've beaten it. Um, but, um, the way I played it is I was kind of shifting around emblems pretty frequently. And so like every, any emblem is valid on any character, but you know, if you're min maxing or trying to get like the most optimal build or character or whatever, you might be like, oh, it's really, really great to put, you know, Celica, like Celica is a very magic based emblem. So obviously you generally want Celica on a magic focused character, but I'm sure there's also other combinations that work out you know, to some utility. But yeah, um, otherwise, I think that's generally all I had to say. Oh, this is kind of a small correction. 
Some people were upset that I called it turtling and not death balling. I, oh, because <laughs> yeah. turtling I, I is, this, I guess, I kinda, just I kind of use the two. They're kind of similar. Yeah, like turtling to me is where you just kind of like ball up in a sense, but don't move, and you kind of just have like your your kind of like your out outer attackers kind of shielding your inner attackers um, from and from enemies, and you're basically just having them come towards you. Whereas death balling is sort of the same thing, where you're kind of balled up, but you're just moving across the map, and obviously making sure that your more squishy units are are away from enemies and kind of supporting your more tanky units or strong attacking units on the outside. Um, I said that in the context of there are, you know, a good handful of open maps in this game where just kind of obviously the most effective strategy is to really, rather than splitting up, it's like, hey, might as well just ball up, run and roll across the map and do that. So, but yeah, uh, I, uh, people are very, very curious about the map design. So I'm going to look a little bit more into it before the review just to, you know, back up any any opinion that I have. So, yeah, because I mean, it's valid to walk away and be like, I feel like the maps were open or closed or choked or or had this level of you know distribution amongst them. But it's another thing to say like, okay, uh, I've counted. There are this many maps. Th- these ones I would consider open. These ones I would consider choked. And do you need to go to that level of detail? Maybe, maybe not. But at least it would substantiate your your feelings uh, mm-hmm. on it. So. Yeah, I think that covers it for uh, games we've been playing this week. Uh, I don't think any of our regular podcast participants were interested in One Piece. I mean, it's it's one of the things where it's like some people I think are passively interested, but it's it's one of those things where it's tied so strongly to a long running op- uh, IP where you're either a One Piece fan or you're not. And I know that when Colin covered that game in a preview sense, he said that they're really trying to focus on that game being almost like an RPG for One Piece fans. Uh, yeah in terms of making it an easy game specifically for fans of the series though of course they always try to like cast as wide a net as possible and say like oh no if you don't know the series it's fine we'll introduce it but you know uh, the game's out now so i'm not going to act like we have any like i've not played it i've only just seen impressions through twitter and forums and reddit and things like that but i guess one of the memory arcs is something that is post time skip which i know the time skip was is not recent anymore but it's still not intro to the ip stuff it's like, like the very first in. so yeah so like the very first two things in the marketing were the was it uh alabasta and water seven which are early arcs and kind of very big key arcs with a lot of almost series defining moments and then it it sounds like they kind of indulge and be like okay here's some stuff from later in the series too so if you're not a one piece fan i don't know how strong of a offering this is but we do have someone on the site uh page i believe is planning on covering for us again we got our code late so it's gonna be no rush on that we'll see if we can get them on the podcast but if not we'll at least be able to point to a written uh article once we do have it up we do have uh cullen's preview of course but um if you are playing one piece odyssey and you're a member of our discord you can go ahead and feel free to chat about it in our general chat there because obviously the game is out and in the open and maybe there are other people we only have so many people on staff and so much time in the day but there might be plenty of others that have been big one piece fans and are playing that game and can talk about uh how they're feeling about it so far as kind of a major very classically designed rpg for a for one of the biggest ips in the world And then the last thing I'll say before we go into the news section is that a few days after last week's podcast, we did have Scott White put up a written preview for Fire Emblem Engage as well. So uh, he was able to put that up on the site. And I think a lot of his um, 
impressions. I don't want to speak for him. You have the preview up on the site, but a lot of his impressions are that he feels similarly similarly to Adam that he's really enjoying the core gameplay and especially the emblem mechanic. His main gripe was calling a lot of the secondary mechanics fluff, which I forget if Adam used quite the same word, but uh, I called it a um, kitchen sink approach. But it was luckily, luckily, unlike you know lecturing, which you kind of have to do in three houses. A lot of the fluff, using Scott's word, you can and probably will end up just ignoring because you kind of realize there's really no point to doing this. It just takes time. Yeah, and it's one of those things where you don't want to. You can you can still criticize it for being like, yeah, I don't feel it. I don't feel this is added to the game. But also, it's like, well, then don't do it. If you don't like it, don't do it. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, it doesn't need to be there. But luckily, the most important thing is that he thought. And this is Scott's opinion based on his preview that the core gameplay reminded him more of the older titles for those that have been kind of out of the loop with Fire Emblem in a while or have been kind of lapsed Fire Emblem fans. Maybe that's a good sign. Uh, kind of depends, I guess. There are so many different types of Fire Emblem fans. It used, to, it used to be that you could categorize it in like old and new, but I don't think even that's sufficient anymore. There's so many different things that this series has been so many different things that it's not surprising that it's hard to cater to all those kind of disparate groups that want different things out of the series. So engage, I feel like. Once it comes out, and I have, I have no idea what the consensus of this is gonna, game is going to be when, once it hits Metacritic or, or whatever. Uh, but it's, it's going to be divisive. It's going to be what? It's going to be mid. Sorry, it's not going to nah, be maybe. mid. mid is a, it's not exactly a bad term. No, no, Chow is just still waiting for his uh, Holy War re uh, remake, which was, this game was rumored to be for so long. Uh, and it turns out it wasn't. So maybe next time. All right, as we go into the news section, obviously early January, things are still just kind of picking back up to speed back into normalcy. Uh, I know we're not just coming out of the holiday, but obviously some of us uh, have only been back to normalcy for a week or a week and a half. So this is a very, very hodgepodge news listing here. We've got a few trailers, some for some big games, and then some announcements of some very niche games, mobile projects, uh, some other projects. So there really is no consistency here. And usually I try to put these headlines in an order that at least makes sense. But uh, this is just going to kind of be uh, a bit of a mixed bag in terms of the scope and scale of these announcements. So we'll just go through them. And uh, Adam wrote up most of these. So I'll be leaning on you, Adam, because uh, you do a really great job in kind of reading the uh, history behind these press releases and knowing kind of what how each of these came to be. So some of these I'll read up the title and kind of give it over to you. Here's one that I thought was interesting uh, outright. This is a new mobile project. And this is for Avatar, that is Avatar The Last Airbender, Generations is a mobile RPG set to release in early this year with the pre-registration now available. So are they also making like a series of four movies after uh, The Last Airbender? I don't. I'm not I sure had, how I much. Had, I had no idea they were doing any sort of new media, like cartoon or movie, for this show. So obviously, I always thought of Avatar: The Last Airbender as kind of like a a done property, not, kind of like in a thing like it ended when it should. They didn't just run it into the ground until it got not good anymore. But then we have the announcement of this mobile game called Avatar: Generations, and then I swear I heard that they're making a. Uh, new movies based on the new characters. I will I will check on that on Wikipedia very quick so I don't give uh, Sorry if you're a big I am Last out of the loop. Fan. I watched I watched yeah. Avatar the Last Airbender then I know it's not even really new anymore but 10 years ago roughly whenever it was they did Legend of Korra. How long ago was that? I feel like it was longer longer ago than I recall. The 2012? Maybe. Yeah, it's about 10 years. Let me take I'm looking this up. Uh -huh. When did Legend so, no, of Korra I, air? 
All right, I found an uh, IGN article. Yeah, yeah, I found an IGN article saying that uh, according to Paramount, it's releasing three planned Avatar movies. The first one in 2025. Uh, so it sounds really. like one one's one's based on Aang. Uh, I think the other ones are not quite set on who they're based on. But yeah, so I guess the IP is having a revival. But let's talk about what we came to talk about here. Of course, a mobile game comes with all the baggage that that, that comes with. Uh, so this came obviously with a very short little 50 second, um, gameplay trailer and it looks like a mobile game. And I don't mean that, like, I don't mean to sound too dismissive, but it, maybe it is a little bit dismissive. So we have, we have a new gameplay trailer for avatar generations and it very clearly has a gotcha system. It very clearly has, uh, kind of a very limited, um, the, the, most of the trailer is just 2d art. And which is fine, but like the gameplay that you see is not that inspired. It looks just very kind of cheap and basic, which is unfortunate. But uh, it might just be if it's a little casual thing that you put on your phone while on the subway or, you know, waiting in the clinic, then maybe that's all it needs to be. But the pre-registration is now open. Maybe we can convince Josh to poke at this, but I have no idea how if he's elapsed Airbender fans or not at all. But got a new Avatar game coming out this year. Uh, and it's being published by like Crystal Dynamics and Eidos. So it's, I didn't realize that they were in the publishing game or even of working with mobile or uh, mobile games at all. But kind of an interesting little project. I'm, I'm more interested out of just curiosity of it, of the IP kind of having a resurgence more than anything. Would that be the first thing that they did after being sold off by Square Enix? Maybe because Adam, maybe maybe you remember the history here. So obviously Crystal Dynamics and a lot of those Western uh, Square Enix studios were sold to embracer right and now they're like their own little arm underneath that group yeah so i honestly don't think that this game looks all too interesting but maybe if you're a huge avatar fan it'll be a fun little diversion for a little while hopefully you know mobile games we it feels like every week we're talking about uh most of the uh shutting down earlier not being supported but hey at least this one's not published by square enix so maybe this one has a chance then the next game that we have in here is another action rpg uh, announcement for japan from the rune factory 5 studio called rear sekai and this is coming to nintendo switch this year uh developed by hakama and we got a new uh announcement trailer for this adam is there anything about this game that you think is worth shouting out is uh, it's from a rune factory dev so does this have a farming sim element to it do you know well to be honest with you so this is a game from bushi road now i had heard of bushi road but i wasn't like very familiar with like who are they they are a Japanese like company that does a lot of like card games and also some mobile games, but they haven't done many console projects. And they had a presentation last week that was basically them jumping into um, console projects. And this was one of those titles. So that's the context of where it was announced. But otherwise, there's not a lot of details other than it's developed by the Rune Factory 5 dev and uh, it's headed by... I forget his name, but a veteran of that team. And that's about it. Uh, I think the most hilarious part is in the Twitter response. As soon as they find out it's done by the Rune Factory dev, they're like, no thanks. Yeah, yeah so the, 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 uh, it's Yoshifumi Hashimoto, who is basically a key developer on a lot of Rune Factory, as well as um, Story Seasons, Harvest Moon titles. So it's probably in that realm of farming sim RPG type of game. Oh no, I, I, I had to see it being released, how it works as well, because I think the 
Rune Factory 5 have left a lot of sour experience for a lot of fans of the series because of the technical issues. And also the trailer that we got doesn't show a whole lot. It just shows the two characters, which, you know, if you lied to me and say, oh, these are Rune Factory characters, I would have believed you. So <laughs> they kind of looked like it. You know, I have never played a Rune Factory, but if you told me these are Rune Factory characters, I'm like, yeah, that's what I would imagine they would look like. So otherwise, yeah, we don't have a lot of details. And then uh, Bushiro did announce a second game, I guess, in the same like uh, in the same event with developed by Landcars. This one, which did Monarch and the Dealfield Chronicle, and that is Mushoko Tensai Jobless Reincarnation Quest of Memories. It's, you know, you know, you've got a good title when you've got the colon and the dash. So again, it's Mushoku Tensai Jobless Reincarnation Quest of Memories. So this is apparently, uh, an anime manga light novel series that I, I've I never heard of. It. I actually yeah. read the manga. I read the uh, light novel, and I've seen the anime. Uh, I do yeah. like the series. That's actually like one of my favorite anime. But a lot of people can't seem to like it because the protagonist is kind of a creep. Because he's like this 40-year-old guy that gets... Uh, well, let's say what happened to him. He was he, not the fortunate event. Uh, he gets run over by a truck, reincarnated, and he's kind of reborn as a child. And so he has like like his memories from being 40 so he's like a creep which really turns off a lot of people uh but i think the good thing about the series is that this main character is very flawed and a lot of things that happens to him is it's basically uh kind of like the consequences of his flawed personality which a lot of isekai shows doesn't seem to have it's always been like a power trip after a power trip uh, this one there's this one part where the main character has like a party to get a reward and he's like hmm i should maximize the danger so people see how dangerous these threats are so i can come in and save them and become the hero but how this story goes is that instead of him trying to save them and become the hero they get fucking slaughtered so he gets no reward at all and that was his con consequences and he has to learn with that so i think that's one of the things i prefer this isekai series over a lot of other shows yeah, and so this game announcement, it's literally just a logo and the developer. Um, no media at all. So again, this is kind of just under the context that Bushiroad, trying to become a new console game publisher, should say, hey, we have signed on Landcars, which is, you know, a studio that's been around a long time. Obviously, more recently, they've done the, the Diofield Chronicle and Monarch, but they've done a lot of other things too, including like the original Etrian Odyssey games, for instance. And, um, but yeah, for, I guess this is obviously going to be interesting to fans of that series. Like, hey, there's going to be an RPG, probably a tactical RPG based on Lancarce's pedigree. Um, for that, how does that look and how does that work? We don't know yet, but you know, that's all we have is the uh, <laughs> is the uh, the title and the logo and the and the platforms. It's coming to I think Brian might have already said this, uh, but it's coming to PlayStation Four, Nintendo Switch, and PC. Yeah, I didn't say that. So good covering on that. Yep. So we have those two games from Bushi Road, uh, Rear Sekai with the, from the Rune Factory devs, and uh, Mushoku Tensai Jobless Reincarnation Quest of Memories. Next announcement that we have is a series that I see us covering a lot in terms of news, but not in terms of actually uh, reviewing or covering or previewing. And that's the Mercenaries Tactical RPG series. I remember when this series had like three games that came out like in the early 2010s at least that's when they were localized they might be older but we have a new seventh game in the series mercenaries lament silver wolf and the seven stars of the maiden 
Now, these are long titles. Mercenaries Lament, Silver Wolf, and the Seven Stars of the Maiden has been announced for Nintendo Switch and PS4. And this is the seventh entry in the Mercenaries Saga Chronicles-like series. I think the series, the only thing they have in common is the word mercenaries. And I know we used to have someone on staff used to cover um, these games as kind of like these single-A, cheap-budget strategy RPGs. Uh, but they they release so frequently, and they're kind of they come and go with a lot of, without a lot of fanfare, and we've had a lot of basically competition in that space that I think they kind of go under the radar. So I don't know if we've got anyone that's big fan specifically of Mercenaries. Another game in the series coming out. Other than that, it's a key art and a story synopsis on the website with the announcement of this Mercenaries Lament. But I don't One know thing if that's it's sort of annoying about these games. Also, this is just more of a pet peeve than anything substantial. But they release so, um, like, staggered in terms of, like, they release on Switch first, and then PS4, and then localized Switch, and then localized PS4, and then Steam. And it just kind of just, it'd be so much nicer if they just kind of all launch on one day rather than just kind of this staggered localization and platform release. Then the, uh, so we have that coming out for Switch and PlayStation 4 this year. And then the last major announcement that we have is a new monster raising RPG from Colopal. I don't know how I pronounce it. C-O-L-O-P-L. And that is Volzerk Monsters and Lands Unknown. This is a PC and mobile game. It looks very much in like the Monster Hunter story sort of vibe. It has a very similar art style. I don't know if the gameplay is similar, but that's when I first saw this game. If you told me and told me to squint and told me that this was Monster Hunter stories, uh, I'd probably believe you other than recognizing that, of course, the monsters are not Monster Hunter monsters. But this game is coming out in. So we basically it came out in Japan in January and it's January right now. So it's either just now out or coming out very soon. Uh, an English language update is announced to come out in the future, but we don't know when. Um, it does obviously also have a Steam page. The Steam page just currently lists um, coming soon. And it clearly states that English language is not supported. But it basically kind of looks like if you enjoyed this this is me not having played Monster Hunter stories. Maybe Adam, I know you played. I'll put a lot of time into the second one. This game looks like it's the sort of thing where if you really had an, a good time with that, it looks like it's really kind of shooting for that same audience. But it's also a free to play like type of game, so it's kind of like, how is this going to work? Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. So when it's free to play, then you don't know like, all right, what's what's happening underneath to, to do the monetization part. Where pretty easy to imagine how a a monster raising for fighting game would would implement a itself in a free-to-play system but it'll be coming out soon in japanese and coming out in english uh, this year so wanted to at least give it a shout out here as a, as a new rpg announcement all right we do have a couple more trailers and release date announcements release date announcements so these are for some uh, a little bit higher tier games that we more typically talk about on this podcast we got a new cinematic trailer for forspoken which of course uh is coming out later in the month on the 24th of january so we won't be talking about it next week but we will be talking about it the week after it does have the the demo uh, on console right now. And um, I do know that back in December, Alex was able to cover his impressions of the demo so far. I thought that the, they did the series of the three gameplay trailers late last year that I thought sold the game really well to me. This cinematic trailer, of course, in the nature of a cinematic trailer that Square released is kind of more how the game was initially marketed, just like, focusing on the character Frey Holland and the fact that it's an isekai, which is probably the two things that I'm least excited about. So this cinematic trailer, on top of being just pure CG, I thought was just kind of like, 
didn't really do much for me. I didn't, I don't dislike it. It's just that I prefer the gameplay trailer, which we've got a lot of footage of. Of course, the demo is out. So people have been recording their own footage. So I think this game has still has the chance of being very interesting and being very fun to play. I just do not really find myself latching onto the premise very strongly. But we got a new cinematic trailer for 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 Forspoken. And it'll be one of these early, early year, pretty major RPG releases that I really have no idea. People have a lot of preconceptions for this game based on um, Luminous's, you know, production history. That I have no idea. This similar to Fire Emblem Engage, I really don't have any good concrete idea of how this is gonna like hit with either critics or audiences. So it'd be interesting to talk about this in two weeks with uh, who is covering this for us. Is it is it Josh or do we decide it's gonna be someone else? I think Josh has right of first refusal. But to be honest, oh, okay. it sounds like they're being a little bit. Uh stingy with pre-release code we might even get one uh, yeah well yeah, is what it is definitely. and i do know that uh josh of course has recently moved so i know he is uh, still working on kind of recalibrating to his new home position so i do plan on playing this uh when it comes out so I, at least Same. at the very least i'll talk about it and uh we'll we'll reshuffle who is going to write up for it on the site if we need to yeah i'm just curious about like it like even if the game itself isn't good which i hope it is uh, I'm very interested in it from a technical aspect because it's going to be the first game with direct storage support on PC, I believe. So that's hmm. going to be interesting to see how it works. And then Luminous always has kind of, uh, even back when it was the Luminous engine or whatever, has kind of tried to position themselves as we are the technical wizards at Square from yesteryear, back when Square was at the front, you know, cutting edge of all this stuff. And they haven't really been that in a while. And I don't think, obviously, Final Fantasy XV didn't quite hit that either, even though on the PC release, they did do a few interesting things with partnering with NVIDIA there. So we'll see if Luminous ends up being, if not that engaging of an open-world RPG, it might have some really fun things under the hood in terms of tech and presentation. So be a little interesting thing to dabble into and see what our impressions are uh, when that comes out. And get that get that kind of clocked and out of the way before February hits. But uh, who knows how massive that thing's going to be? I could see that game kind of being a uh, long in the tooth in terms of how long it takes to get through it. And here is probably the least exciting gameplay trailer I've ever had to write a news post for. I feel I very I feel kind of bad opening with that, but I think it's true. Uh, one of the games releasing in February, of course is Tales of Symphonia Remastered. So obviously this game has been re-released a handful of times. And when we were teased last year that Nameco was going to remaster a Tales game, we all had impressions of what that could be. And unfortunately, it was Tales of Symphonia again. So uh, that is what it is. And we got a new trailer from Nameco basically giving a combat and gameplay 101 for Tales of Symphonia. If you haven't played it before, very, very bland, but that is something I always want to caveat and say Tales of Phonia is a great game. If you haven't played it, now you should be able to play it on PS4 or Switch as of uh, February 17th of this year. But the uh, it is like you look at the trailer and you're like, yep, that's Tales of Symphonia. Yep, it looks like the same version that released on PS3, PS2, and PC. So it kind of is what it is. Still a great game, but still always just kind of have that caveat of A, it's still not 60 FPS, and B, it's still Tales of Symphonia. I feel like it's unplayable unless it's a GameCube version. That's for me. Mm-hmm. I bought it on PC, and I'm like, this isn't 60 FPS, instant drop. I know like, it I sounds do- very like smug and snobby, but it's just... I think the I think the context is a little different because it was 60 FPS in its original release. That's the main kicking point here. 
Uh, just say that makes it so unfortunate. I don't think it's like snobby to say that you don't want to play a game at 30 FPS. There's some games like, well, there's some people that just they literally get headaches from that shit. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, like for an action RPG, especially it's like you want that responsiveness. And it's like, but even at the but, time, I remember Tales of Symphonia having like really limited animation. Like I remember even even me as a snot nosed eighth grader or whatever I was at the time. I'm dating myself here a bit, I guess. Uh, like when you see like the scenes in Symphonia and Colette will like throw the rings and like very mechanical, awkwardly animated like action scenes after playing games like Final Fantasy X or things like that. It's like, man, this looks really bad. So I wonder even like re- I've not replayed Tales of Symphonia in 15 years. So I wonder like now people coming to it now, like I'd be like, wow, this game is a lot feels a lot more dated than it should and i don't i think basing itself off the ps2 version might just exacerbate that so i keep saying it's a great game but now i'm like "Eh, it's a good game it was a good game for its time you should play it on gamecube if you can i recommend the tales of destiny remake if anybody understands japanese it is still the greatest tales game Mm -hmm. ever made yeah, maybe maybe Nameco will. There was there was a Q Q and A on the official website. I don't know when it got put up, but basically the Q and A uh, asks like, "Is this the first in a series of remasters or what?" And it's very it's very generally worded. It's hard to extrapolate any true meaning out of it. But basically, it sounds like, "Well, we picked Symphonia because Symphonia was a major release for us. Obviously, it was the it's like the fifth main entry of the series. It was the one that was really first." pushed in the west and obviously had the big nintendo marketing behind it so we know a lot of people have a lot of uh you know adherence to this game so we're going to remaster it which makes sense but it's like all right but what about these other like opportunities like the tales of destiny remake and things that we never got you know that would be really cool to um see those for the first time officially in english so hopefully this game does well and that we keep seeing more projects in this tales back catalog come forward in the future because we saw we saw vesperia of course in like 2018 Symphonia here, and hopefully they'll go forward from there into more interesting I, I think, titles. I think I think the Namco is probably working on it because there was like a fan translation group. I think it was Absolute Zero that was working on some of these projects, and they just suddenly dropped it completely and like completely get rid of their like source code. Wouldn't let anyone take the project and just drop and say they they said they had a falling out with with their staff or something. If I remember, I don't know something like that. But I feel it's more like Namco stepping in and telling them to stop because they're probably working on it officially or something. At least that's my assumption. I do remember covering uh, at some point this the Lumina Tales doing their fan translation of um, Tales of Destiny 2, the actual Tales of Destiny 2. Um, Not Tales of Inferno. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, I look at that, and apparently they're planning to release that patch sometime in 2023, so I'll keep an eye on that. Uh, it be a fun way to experience that game for the first time. I could tell you the voice we, acting in that game is very good. We got a, a new release date here, and this is for a, a port, so maybe not too exciting, but uh, East 9 Monstrum Knox will be releasing on PlayStation 5 in North America in May. Obviously, this game has already gone through the gamut of being out in Japan on PS4 back in 2019, and then coming over and releasing on PC, on Switch, and even on Stadia, remember that, uh, in 2021 here in the West. And now it's going to get a PS5 release this year. And the PS5 release will also include um, all the, uh, all the, it'll bundle in all the DLC and extra stuff for that. So it'll be kind of like a gold edition of the game for PS5. Yeah. 
Yeah, just to stress, because um, like in NAS America, even like when I asked them about this, told me this, there is no, from what I can tell, graphical enhancements from the PS4 version besides 4K60, but the PS4 version runs at 4K60 on PS5 from the get-go. So this isn't for people that already own the PS4 version and own the PS5. This is strictly for people that own a PS5 and want to pick up the game and get all the DLC, which... For East 9, honestly, the DLC is all just like cosmetic stuff. So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. But I, obviously, it'll make the game available to more people and kind of kind of have that nice little bundled edition of the game that has. Does this have everything? Yes, it has everything. And of course, we are only a week or so from, uh, from the announcement of East 10. Still no formal English localization announcement from that. But uh, hopefully we'll see that soon. And I'm assuming that'll be in East America, but based on the fact that we know that they also announced the memories, uh, not memories of Celseta, um, Oath and Thalgana remaster. So it's been a lot of been a lot of yeast in the news lately. But I, I guess the main thing people are wondering is when we're going to see East 10. And I I have no idea if we can expect that this year or if that's going to be more realistically a next year thing Probably for not. us. Oh, in the no, West. definitely not. Definitely not this year. Like next year at the earliest, possibly gotcha. 2025. Because didn't it come? Didn't East Nine come out like early twenty twenty one? Yeah, February. Yeah, then probably early twenty twenty five is the. Yeah, I guess for for East Nine, it looks like it was about a year and a half delay. So yeah, it'd be it would be early twenty. Uh, if East Ten is mid this year, then yeah, you're right. It could be as late as um twenty twenty five. So, unfortunately, let's see. We have a uh. Here's something that, again. We'll have to lean on Chow a bit. Is that we have Genshin Impact. It's it's another one of its six week updates uh, on January 18th for Genshin Impact 3.4. And then there's a bunch of a bunch of proper nouns here that I don't know what these are. Uh, They're adding new characters, Alatime and Yao Yao, and then a new desert area. So I don't know if you're still. Uh, Do you you know how to say it? I I have no idea how to say his name. I just know that he's the Goblin Slayer guy. When you're playing the story mode, he comes and saves you, and he's like this badass genius dude that has a very shady backstory. Like, he's very shady. But yet, you know, because he did something heroic, so you trust this guy. Um, what is it? He, he, he's going to play like uh, a Dendro Kaching. If anyone is familiar with Gen- Genshin, they'll, they'll know what I'm talking well, about. I know Dendro, because I know you talked about that being like the most recent element that they added, but I don't know what the. The second word you said, it's, I'll be honest, it's not like to me you said Kaching. Yes, Kaching is a character that was part of the original roster of the SSR characters that you can get. Uh, she basically plays like a Genshin version of Noctis. She uses the swords and she has, uh, what is it? I, I forgot what the exact ability is called because I never read the ability. Um, but her basic skill is that she throws a little ball. And and you press the button again, and she'll teleport where that ball is and does a slash, uh, sort of like Noctis, right, with his warp strike. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then he ha- and then she has this super attack where she basically does a, like a tons of slashes all over the screen. And this new character basically has like almost the exact skill set, and that's why people are like making fun of him and calling him the Dendro Kaching. Um, but I think he's actually going to be a lot better because uh, Kaching is not a limited character, so she was never like you know publicly buffed and always been like power creep, and her elements was kind of 
week without a lot of set, setting it up. So it's just kind of like she just like a lot of people kind of stop using her. You know, she's a very but but Dendro character. is just inherently more useful. Uh, Dendro is just a lot of cool things you can do with it, and I think that's probably why it would be a lot more better instead of like you know Electro. Electro always have like pathetic damage in the game, in my opinion, and it needs a lot of work to get the damage going. Of course, when you know how to do these things, it's like you do a lot of crazy damage, right? It just takes a lot of setting it up, right? Um, Dendro is just like... Okay, it's just like natural damage. Like, uh, if you have Nahida, which is like the 3.2 poster child, she is like one of the most broken characters. What she does is that she uses this move where she uses her hands to turn to, into like kind of like a camera. And when you locked onto enemies, it'll, cost, it'll cast this dot that does like 20 to 30 thousand damage if you're like very geared. And you can even switch your character out and that dot would still keep hitting them. And then, and combined with other characters, it becomes like very broken. Um, for example, there's this one character, she could use an electricity barrier, uh, I think it's Shinobu. And with paired with that dot, it was like, you're just getting free damage, killing everything while she takes no damage at all. And that barrier also heals heals her, so in a way. It's like there's all these like broken setups once you have Nahida. And so what is uh what is your main four right now? I'm still in, I I'm assuming it's still Ganyu and then three others. I, I always change depending on the fight. Uh if I'm clearing the spiral abyss, then uh I, I would have to adjust to whatever boss they have. Like the spiral abyss is supposed to be the hardest content in the game. Obviously, if you have a decent roster set of characters, you can clear it pretty easy. Uh, like if you if you've been playing the game consistently, you you can clear it kind of easy, right? If you haven't played it like much, then you probably struggle with it. And they keep making like like new mechanics to each floor to kind of screw over like whatever you were adjusted to previously. So your roster always changed to adapt to whatever the spiral abyss puts you through, like. Last time, I think, I don't remember which time it was, but there was a time where uh, it had, like, this field effect where you just keep taking damage. So that kind of screws over, like, people that use rely too much on, like, um, barriers and stuff because you would be okay. killed by, like, the like, the damage from... The pulsing damage, yeah. Yeah, from the effect. Because, you know, you can, like, bypass all the damage problem by bringing Zhongli in and giving yourself a barrier, and then you don't have to worry about that shit, right? But yeah, I like that. Um, I like that answer rather than just saying I roll with these four all the time and, and and they don't change. Yeah, like you always have to adjust to whatever it is. I, um, I think I think what usually makes the spiral abyss hard is because there's a time limit that you have to clear in in order to get the max reward, and it depends on what kind of player you are. Like whales can clear that content in a split second. Like, um, but under like a you know like more experienced player that have sort of like a decent gear set um those those could be still kind of challenging content because you'd be like fighting um content that are harder than maybe even like the bosses in the game and you only have two minutes to clear it and you know and if you don't meet that two minutes to clear it then then you're kind of screwed right so yeah that makes sense and yeah no it's it's are you planning on playing this when it comes out uh, on the 18th well i 
let's see. I, I am more interested in not the characters. I am more interested in the Ayaka skin that they're selling, which is kind of the dumbest part. Uh, there is just a, 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 a skin for existing character. Yeah, there's a skin for Ayaka. She's uh, what is it? She's like the poster child for uh, version 2.0. She's from the like the Jap like the Japanese theme, uh, kingdom. The uh, was it? I can't, mm-hmm. I can't remember the name. Inazuma, and she's ca- part of the Kamisato family, and yeah, she's like the poster child for that version. And and then basically she's traveling to like the monster, like Monstat, where it's more like a European base uh, theme country. And then she's kind of like wearing like an outfit from there. It's very modest outfit. Uh, but anyways, uh, Adam, Adam just linked mo- it in chat for us. Yeah, outfits the most interesting part. <laughs> I'm looking forward to. I don't care about well, the new character or the content. Even if he is voiced by the Goblin Slayer dude. It's nope. I just want the costume. You, you've heard it here, folks. We've got our, our whale representation up on up on the podcast. So you have a, you have your voice. So we we know how you feel. And nope, I've I've totally spent money on. Uh, cosmetics before, or I don't know if you spend money on this, or you roll for it. Uh, uh, is it a microtransaction? Yeah, to okay. spend money. Oh. Um, okay. I, a lot of people think it's a ripoff because in Genshin is like, was it? These costumes are nearly thirty dollars. If Oof. you think about how much it costs, and uh, if you buy it in the you know during patch day, they give you like a discount, so it's probably like uh, twenty five dollars. But if you don't buy it. Within patch day, it's going to be like $30. So it's kind of like the fear of missing out effect to drive players to buy them, right? And, you know, they never get more discounted than that. So so that's usually how I see the costumes. But of course, everyone always whale responsibly. Yes. But yep, that'll be coming out next week. But uh, unfortunately, I feel like we're going to be spending more time next week talking about uh, Fire Emblem. But of course, we'll stay on top of Genshin as we uh, as we always do, and at least get Chow's little look in on on that game every six weeks or so. And then the final uh, the final piece of news here, and this is one that I think is pretty recent as of just today, is that one of the major releases of last December was Dragon Quest Treasures, which came out on Switch, and we did get up the review up on the site from Paige. Uh, and now has a demo available on the eShop. And even though the demo came out after the game, the demo will still do what Square Enix has been doing a pretty good job with. And it does have, uh, it does carry over your completion from the demo to the full game. And I don't know how significant this is, but also you get some bonus items if you complete the demo. I'm, I'm sure it's just like a few consumables to help you get uh, help you get started. But if Dragon Quest Treasures was something you missed back in December and you're not sure about it, uh, you do now have a demo on the eShop. And... Um, I know Adam was initially really interested in this game, but it's one of those games that came out right before everyone started traveling for the holidays and want to make sure that as a December release that we kind of give it its due diligence because uh, it'll be in contention for all of our yearly talks this year as a we'll consider it effectively a 2023 release, but has a demo now available. Honestly, there's just so many other games to play anyways, but also it's just like I'd rather play this game on any other console than Switch, probably PC. Well, you know, just... Adam, as soon as you pick it up on Switch, it'll be announced for PC. So just just do us all a favor. <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. Beat Live no, Live, true. Adam, so that there's a PC port. Yeah, Adam, you haven't played I haven't Live, played live, live, live yet. yet, so I'm waiting. <laughs> just beat it, please. I saw someone say, like, I was looking for this demo on my PlayStation 5. Oh, wait. So, yeah, I'm not sure. You know, Square Enix 
has never had any consistency on what they release on how. And there was even a um, a headline this week about uh, Yoshi P saying for Final Fantasy 16, hey guys, it hasn't been announced for anything other than PlayStation 5, just so you know, even though I'm pretty sure that it has been like sideways announced for PC because it's all the early footage of that would just say console exclusive and things like that. But why Square Enix releases certain games on certain consoles at certain times and not others will always be an enigma. And there's no rhyme or reason. There's not even a pattern. So no way of ever I, knowing. I, I actually <laughs> don't know why they would give Yoshi P flack for saying that. Because what is he going to say? They're under NDA. They can't tell you if they are actually are working on a PC version. Because if they tell you that, then you're not going to buy on PS5. It's like, what is he supposed to say? Yeah, I mean, I don't blame him at all. It's just like, hey, we're announcing this game for PS5. I'm producing it. Please play it. Uh, So, you know, of course he's going to say that. And that covers it for the news this week. So like I kind of said, bit of a hodgepodge, just kind of wrapping up some some smaller game announcements and obviously uh, looking forward to pretty much every week from here through March. There's a one new major release under our purview. So it feels like from here for the next six weeks or so, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Uh, I know James was talking about a lot of things that he has that are freeing up from embargo going into next week. Obviously, Fire Emblem Engage is next week. Forspoken's the week after. We've got already February is the February from hell with all sorts of stuff releasing. Uh, and I think April is the first time on Adam's calendar. Again, I'll give a shout out here to the RPG of 2023 calendar that Adam keeps up to date. April's the first time that it even really lets up. And of course, by the time we get there, I'm sure it'll be significantly filled in either through new announcements or through slight delays of existing games. But uh, today is our one week or this week is our one week to kind of catch up on those things from December or or earlier or fill out your backlog before we get into new release deluge. Uh, But thank you so much for listening. Uh, We will be back next week with uh, basically the curtain unveiled for Fire Emblem Engage. RPG site can be found on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. And you can also join our Discord if you're interested in chatting about any of these games, discord.gg slash RPG site. Uh, leave us comments on the podcast post, on the YouTube, or even on the um, your podcast service of choice if you enjoyed listening to this. We love reading that. We got a lot of feedback from the Fire Emblem Engage preview. So it was really kind of fun to actually see a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of comments on that, both good and bad, because it was kind of fun to just to see that kind of get shared over to Reddit and see a lot of people discussing what their uh, thoughts and excitement for Fire Emblem Engage was. But we'll be back next week to kind of go through and fill out the topic on that. So until you hear from us next time, stay safe, take care, and we will talk to you then.